If you have your Bibles, if you'll join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, as we continue to walk through this Gospel. And the theme of this morning of our text is soul thirst. Um, all of us know what it's like to be thirsty. And uh, we all can relate to that. We know that feeling. We know that feeling of satisfaction that comes when that thirst is quenched. And, uh, and so uh, I, there was a, one evening in particular over this past week, I was extra thirsty. And, and maybe you can relate. It's been spring break, which was a, a fantastic week. Uh, we were able to go up to Cincinnati, uh, actually right after church last Sunday, loaded up in the minivan and headed north. And we made it up there and actually went to the Ark Encounter, which is nearby and saw the Bills family and the, and the Blacks family. And, and so it was great running into them up there. And then we spent a day in Cincinnati and we spent our time with the Howard family. And we have a picture of them. Uh, you might remember Jonathan was uh, with us back in October and he preached for us on that morning. He's a church planter in Cincinnati his wife, Mandy, and their three kids. And, and so God has called them to this brand new work. They're on the east side of the city. And it was such a blessing to see them, encourage them. And uh, it's always encouraging to, to know, one, that God is always at work. Like he's always at work. He's working in Olive Branch. He's working in our county. He's working in our, in our region. And he's at work all over the world. And so to see this family has planted their lives there on the east side and they are starting a brand new work to reach that community for Jesus. And so as we went up there, it was awesome to see it and experience it and, and see how God has provided. By the way, it's another story, but God literally gave them a house. They didn't have a house. God gave them a house. Like that's a whole nother story. And, and so God has just been so faithful and so while we were there, we were like, okay, we want to experience Cincinnati. And so uh, we wanted to eat something that was very Cincinnati. And for Cincinnati, uh, one of their big things is Skyline Chili. Has anybody ever had Skyline Chili? All right. It is, they are proud of that. They love it. I know Pastor Michael loves it. It's basically chili on spaghetti and that's their thing. And it's, it's, uh, it's beloved up there. And so we took our whole family over to Skyline Chili. We basically taken over an area of the restaurant and our waitress was an all-star. Like she was incredible. And, uh, and so I ate, uh, lots of chili and if you eat lots of chili, it makes you very thirsty. And honestly, I just didn't have the heart to ask our waitress for water because she was so busy with everything that's going on. And so like, I'm leaving Skyline thirsty. I, I want something to drink. I'm very thirsty. So we get in the car and we're like, well, let's go eat ice cream. So Grater's ice cream is a Cincinnati local place there. And so let's go get ice cream and, and surely like ice cream will satisfy thirst, won't it? It doesn't. It like makes you thirstier. Like you think it is. You're like, this is going to be cold, refreshing. But the more ice cream you eat, the thirstier you are. And so now I'm really thirsty. And then we go back to their place and we just hang out for hours. And it was awesome catching up. And I just didn't have the heart to interrupt good conversation and say, hey, could I get something to drink? I'm, I'm really thirsty. And so finally, late in the night, we made it back to where we were staying and I made a beeline to the refrigerator, got a bottle of water and I just crushed it. It, it was, it was gone and, and, and it was so good, but it literally lasted for a moment. And I was like, I need more. <laughs> and so I went back and, and so I went back because the water, though it was refreshing in the moment, it, it didn't satisfy. And so that's a reason I share this because we're going to see a gospel interaction between Jesus and a very thirsty soul. 
And he's going to take this physical reality of thirst, which we can all relate with. And, and what he's going to do is he's going to build a bridge into addressing what is mankind's uh, greatest, deepest spiritual need. And so as he does this, we're going to be reminded of one truth that we cling to as believers and what we know to be true. And that is that only Jesus can satisfy a soul's greatest thirst. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about even um, those ways that over the course of our lives, we've kind of gone after these things that we think will bring satisfaction only to get to the end of that thing and realize that our thirst has not been quenched. That Jesus is the only one who can quench our soul's thirst. Let's look at John chapter 4. In verse 1, the Bible says this. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. I love, I love the model of Jesus. And I love that for us, as those who have been redeemed by him, he is our perfect example. <laughs> He's our model. With his grace and the strength of his spirit, we want to live a life that looks like Jesus and points others to Jesus. And so just a few days back, I don't know exactly how long of a time it was, but in John chapter 3, Jesus was having a nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. He was in Jerusalem. And then the Bible tells us towards the end of chapter 3 that Jesus moved from Jerusalem and he moved into the Judean countryside. So the region outside of Jerusalem. And now in John chapter four, we see that Jesus is continuing to move his ministry forward. And he now is going through Samaria, ultimately getting to Galilee. And I love how if we fast forward to the birth and launch of the church in Acts chapter one, Jesus tells his disciples, he's like, my Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and will empower you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so here's Jesus, our perfect model, from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and taking the good news to the end of the earth. But in verse 4, the Bible says this, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. It speaks of his purpose. It speaks of his focus. It speaks of his mission. That he had to go there. He could have gone other places, but he had to go to Samaria, which we see in this first observation is that the mission of God is to seek and save thirsty sinners. To seek and to save thirsty sinners. This is the mission of Jesus. He tells us over in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save the lost. That, that he came in Mark 10 tells us he came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. The whole purpose in him coming is to give light and to give life. And we're going to uncover a little bit more about the animosity, hostility thing between Jews and Samaritans. But just to say right now, there is major hostility and animosity between Samaritans and between Jews. Jews will go out of their way to avoid Samaria. So if you're in Jerusalem and you're headed north, through Samaria to Galilee, they will actually cross the Jordan on the east side, walk up Perea, and then once they're above Samaria, they will cross back over to the west, just completely to avoid it. And so where Jews would go out of their way to avoid Samaritans, I love this, Jesus goes out of his way to go specifically to a Samaritan. 
I love that about Jesus. And there's a lot of lessons here, but I think one of the reasons that he did that was because he needed to teach his disciples something that was very important. And that very important truth was this, is that God loves all people. That there's no partiality with God. There's no segments of people that God loves more than others. He loves all people. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples and no doubt he's blowing their minds as, as he does. And so here he goes. He's going out of his way to meet this Samaritan woman. He has this perfect foreknowledge and he's headed there. The disciples don't know who he's going to meet. She doesn't know who, he's, who she's going to meet, but this is all part of God's divine plan. And it is 12 o'clock. It's 12 o'clock. Verse 5, the Bible says this. Excuse me, it's 12 o'clock. And so in verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. The sixth hour is 12 noon. And I love that Jesus is wearied. Why is he weary? He's weary because he is pursuing lost and thirsty souls. He's pouring himself out. One of the great truths of Scripture is that Christ is fully God and he's fully man. The beginning of John, he told us, in the beginning was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God. You go down to verse 14 of chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus Christ humbled himself, clothed himself in flesh, why? To be our perfect sacrifice, to take our place on the cross. Live the life we should have lived. Died a death that we, we should have deserved and was placed in a tomb and he rose again from the dead. And so Jesus has come to be that perfect sacrifice for us. And he's there at Jacob's well and it's, the 12, it's 12 o'clock noon, the sixth hour. It's the hottest part of the day. In verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? A woman of Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jewish men would not speak publicly to another woman. And much less a Jewish rabbi speaking to a woman in public. And not only that, but speaking to a woman in public who is a Samaritan is like a major cultural no-no. But I love that Jesus just blasts through the cultural norms. And there was this animosity I mentioned, and I want to give a picture of why that animosity exists between Jews and Samaritans for just, just, just a moment. If you think back to the Old Testament, the United Kingdom, King Saul was Israel's first king, and then King David, and then King Solomon. And after King Solomon, the United Kingdom became a divided kingdom. A kingdom to the north, ten tribes to the north, a kingdom to the south, two tribes to the south. In the northern kingdom, it was also known as Israel, and there was a guy named King Jeroboam that was king, was king and ruled over the northern kingdom. And in the south, it was Rehoboam, and he ruled the southern kingdom. Now, uh, Jeroboam was, was a wicked king. He led the, the northern kingdom to uh, idol worship. He actually set up altars as far north as a community called Dan. You can actually see the altar today. Uh, it was right on the edge of Syria. 
And then he also built an altar in Bethel. And so he's leading them in idolatrous worship. And then in time, 722, the Assyrians were the power of that time. And they swoop down and they basically conquer the northern kingdom. They conquer Israel. And when the Assyrians come in, they had a method to their madness. They said, we're going to take all the people that we capture. We're going to pluck them up and we're going, we're going to put them in another conquered land. And people that we conquered from another land, we're going to pick them up and we're going to put them right here. And so they're erasing any sense of national identity or any of that. They have a, a method to their madness. But what would happen is they would take the Jews, but they wouldn't take all of them. They would leave behind the poor. They would leave behind the ones that would continue to farm or take care of the, the fields. And so what happened over time was non-Jews intermarried with Jews. And with that, you can imagine the mashup of cultures and religion and, and, and perspectives and, and all those things. And ultimately, the Jewish people came to resent the Samaritans because they were not true Jews. And matter of fact, if you fast forward to, to uh, the 500s BC, the southern kingdom was taken over by Babylon. And those were taken over to Babylon. 70 years later, a group was able to return and begin to rebuild. Well, while Nehemiah is rebuilding, actually some Samaritans came down to help. But Nehemiah says, uh-uh, we don't want your help. We don't need your help. And so they return back to Samaria. And what happens now is the Samaritans build their own temple. And they build their temple on Mount Gerizim. And then in Jerusalem, you had the temple built on Mount Zion. And they looked a lot alike. And, and, and so not only that, but they had, the Samaritans had priests and they offered sacrifices. But they only believed the first five books of the Bible. They rejected uh, God's revelation that he had given in the, in the complete Old Testament. The Jews embraced that. And so there was great animosity Year after year, this animosity grows. And I say all of that to say this, for a Jew to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman was shocking. It was shocking. And so again, it's the sixth hour, it's 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And why in the world would a woman be going in the heat of the day to get water? It's because she did not want to be seen. Most people would gather their water in the cool of the evening. And not only did she go out to Jacob's well, but very likely she would have passed multiple wells on her way to that one, all increasing the chances that she wouldn't see somebody she knows because she is ashamed of her life. And she didn't want to go to the well and have the people stare at her. She didn't want to go to the well and hear the whispers of people judging her. She didn't want to go and have uh, people harassing her for uh, her sinful lifestyle that she was living in. She, she just wanted to go somewhere where there wouldn't be anybody else there. She goes out of her way not to see anybody. And Jesus goes out of his way to meet her at her point of need. And here is a beautiful truth about the gospel is that Jesus doesn't wait until we clean our lives up to receive us and accept us and forgive us. But rather, he meets this thirsty soul, this weary soul, and meets her where she is to give life. And so praise God that he doesn't wait until we're all cleaned up because that will never, ever happen. He meets us where we are. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you 
living water. Living water. Living water is a picture of salvation. In the Old Testament, uh, living water would represent that uh, eternal relationship with God. It speaks of forgiveness. It speaks of peace with God. It speaks of uh, eternal life with God. And so Jesus is like, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who was talking to you right now, you could have living water. In verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Not there, but I would love to have been a fly around the well at that time. But what my instincts as we read, I, I really sense and we'll hear her brevity of responses. You almost get the sense that she is very weary, that she is very tired. You hear the brevity, the terseness of her response. This well's a hundred foot deep. She's like, where are you going to get water like that? You don't even have something to draw from. Verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She looks at him, she's like, you think you're greater than Jacob? And, and if you knew who was talking to you right now, and he was asking you for a drink, you would ask for living water. I mean, he could have in that moment said, I made Jacob. I made you. I've created everything that you see is made by me and through me. But the conversation continues in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's still thinking purely in the physical. Like living water? I don't have to come here anymore? Yes, give me some of that. I would, I would love that. But rather what's happening is that you can't receive the living water that wells up to eternal life until you realize that you're thirsty. Until the soul realizes how thirsty they are. And that thirst can only be quenched through a relationship with Jesus. This is not a physical thirst that we speak of, but it's much deeper. It's a spiritual thirst. It's a soul thirst. Jesus is saying, whoever drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. And the well is right there. And I think under the banner of whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. You can put every earthly pursuit under that heading. And we all could sit here and testify because all of us can agree and affirm that there will never be a dollar amount that you can make that will make you satisfied. You'll always be hungry for more. That there is no job that if you finally get that dream job that you've always wanted and dreamed, what will happen is it will not satisfy you. You'll just desire more. The title that you would hope to earn beside your name that if you get that title beside your name, if you are banking on that title, satisfying your deepest soul thirst, you will only become more thirstier. The time, uh, uh, no, no, no degree. I'm, I'm four degrees. I'm for all those things. I'm for pursuing those, 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 uh, those jobs and aspiring to those things. But what I'm saying is if you're thinking that's going to satisfy your deepest soul, 
you're going to be thirsty again. It's March Madness right now, and if you filled out a bracket, your bracket is ruined right now. <laughs> but here's the thing, whoever wins that title and whoever lifts up that trophy in the end, guess what? It's not going to be enough. It's going to be a thirst for more. No GPA, no notoriety, there's no drug, there's no drink, there's no pleasure, there's no relationship that can satisfy your deepest soul thirst. Just ask the woman at the well, who we will soon see has tried relationship after relationship after relationship after relationship. So the mission of God is to seek and save thirsty sinners, but salvation begins with admitting that you're thirsty. There's an order to salvation. And so to be saved, you must acknowledge that you need to be saved, that you have a thirst that can only be quenched by Jesus. In verse 16, Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So what Jesus is doing is he's moving the conversation from a conversation about water to exposing her need for forgiveness and grace and salvation. He's bringing her to that understanding. Salvation always involves turning from sin. And so her sin is laid open, brought to the light, exposed. In verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's, he's telling her everything about herself. And so she is acknowledging this is a confession of her sin. She's no longer trying to hide her sin. And in verse 20, the Bible says, our fathers worship. This is the lady at the well speaking. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Well, that doesn't really quite go together. <laughs> so he's just exposed her sin and her need for his grace and forgiveness and for salvation. And, and, and she perceives that, yes, he is indeed the prophet, the ultimate prophet. But yet, do you see what she does? She's deflecting. She's changing the conversation. She goes from talking about her sin that is laid bare before the Lord. And, and she's like, jumps to outward behavior about worship. Like, well, you say worship in, in, in Mount Zion and Jerusalem. I say worship on this mount. We say worship on this mount, Mount Gerizim. And, and what she's doing is she's deflecting. Why? Because nobody likes talking about their sin. Nobody enjoys our sin coming into the light. You don't see people being super excited about talking about their unhealthy relationships that have crossed every boundary that you know that is unhealthy. You don't see people excited about uh, exposing their drug habit or, or an alcohol issue struggle or a gossip issue, these kind of things, bringing these things in the light. What the enemy tells us to do is just whisper, just keep it quiet, keep it, keep it in the dark. But what's beautiful is this, is that when that sin is brought to the light, it loses its power and that there is grace and that there is forgiveness. And so to be saved, you must admit that you need to be saved, that you will never drink of the living water that God will give you until you realize that you have a soul thirst, a need 
for grace and forgiveness. So salvation begins with admitting that you're thirsty. Salvation is experienced through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now again, just a reminder, the Samaritans only clung to those first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected the rest. They didn't have a complete view of God's revelation to his people by that point. The Jews had done that. And so Jesus is a Jew. He's the king of the Jews. But what Jesus is helping her understand is this isn't about a place. This isn't about a building on that mountain or this mountain. And I think People can be tempted to make salvation an outward behavior when what Jesus is teaching us is that it's not about an outward behavior, but it's about an inward change. Christ is teaching her that salvation is about a relationship with a person. Verse 23, but the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What that spirit is referring to is referring to to your heart. To worship the Lord in spirit is not about an outward behavior, but again, it's about the posture of a surrendered heart. Jesus calls us to be all in. It's not about ex- external behavior. It's about the heart. Jesus says, I'm looking for worshipers who worship in spirit, who are all in with their surrendered heart, spirit and truth. In other words, not just caught up in an emotion, but rather caught up in an heart surrendered to the truth of who the Bible says that Jesus is. And so this spirit is to be rightly informed and influenced and shaped by the word. This is why we have to be very guarded not to believe what we feel, but believe in what we know. Verse 25, the Bible says that the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I know the Messiah is coming. I know he's coming. He's called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. What did Jesus just tell her? All things. You're right. He's not your husband. And you've been married five times before. He's told her everything she knew. If we were to fast forward in the text, you will find this Samaritan woman running through her town and telling everybody about Jesus. Over in John 4, verse 39, the Bible says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Christ is communicating to her. I am the Messiah. I am the one. I'm the only one who can forgive you of your sin, give you peace with God and give you eternal life. I'm the only one that can give that living water that springs up into eternal life. And I love the fact that 
Jesus, this is the first time Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah to, 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 to another person. Isn't this, this is amazing. Like he could have started in, in the, with the crowds, but rather he starts in Samaria with a woman who is weary, with a woman whose heart has grown calloused, with a woman who is tired, with a woman who has a soul thirst that is longing to be quenched, that she had drank from the fountain of pleasure and she had drank from the fountain of relationship after relationship, all in an effort to satisfy that deepest soul need. But the words of Jesus ring out, if you drink this water, you will continue to be thirsty. He is the only way, he is the only way to experience true soul satisfaction. And so as I wrap up, I think about the, the there's a hymn called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And it's one of my favorite hymns of the faith. And here's what one of the choruses says. It says, Oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and a life more abundant and free. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will go strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. And what we see at this, at Jacob's well and Sychar in Samaria is you see God's glory and you see God's grace on full display. The Bible teaches us that he gives grace upon grace. And so for the believer in the room, if you're here and you, you have acknowledged your thirst and you've acknowledged that you're a sinner and you've repented of your sin. That's a change of mind about your sin. You turn to Jesus, place your faith and trust in Jesus alone because he alone is the Messiah. The encouragement I believe for us is, 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 is that we would, we would weary ourselves to introduce weary people to Jesus. The only one that can satisfy and though we are redeemed people, we are not a perfect people. And it is very easy for all of us to get caught up in thinking that that promotion or that title or, or that, that thing, that job, that relationship, that those things, if we can just get there, then that's going to make everything better. When the reality is, is, is we'll, just, we'll just be thirsty again. But that our true thir thirst is satisfied in him. So here's the encouragement for the believer. Worship him in spirit and truth. What is spirit? To be all in with your heart. And not to be just all in on emotion, but be all in in spirit and in truth. That the, the voice of the Lord, the voice of his word is steering and guiding and informing our lives and the direction of our decisions and living in a way that honors him. So God, help us to be all in. Help us to be weary going after people who need Jesus, the only source for satisfaction. But then there's also great grace to the, the thirsty soul who has chased ever after every, every earthly thing, thinking that's going to be the thing that makes everything better. When the reality is, is every Every road other than Jesus is a dead end road and will only leave you 
thirsty for more. I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm just saying they don't satisfy your soul. And so the invitation is that Jesus has made his way to the place that Jews don't go. And he goes to the desperate place, to the dark place, and he meets the person who is weary where they are and offers them living water, a relationship with himself. And so if that's you, I encourage you that today would be the day of salvation. That you can't have living water if you don't admit that you're thirsty. And you come to that place where you get to the end of yourself and you acknowledge your need for a Savior, your need to be forgiven. And repenting, it's changing your mind about sin and self and turning to Jesus in his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. And through that, receiving him as Lord, the Bible says... You have living water. It, it springs up into eternal life. Forgiveness, peace, grace, and eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for this. This good news isn't just reserved for a, a certain segment of people. But rather, God, that your love and grace is in pursuit of, of every soul. That God, that where Jews would have gone east and gone north and crossed back over west, you go straight to, you go straight to the desperate place to meet the thirsty soul, to provide what only you can provide. And so, God, I pray as believers, you will find us all in, our hearts all in and surrender to you wearying ourselves to point people to you, the only source of satisfaction. The Father, that we would, you would bring deep conviction into our lives if there, are, if there are areas of our lives that we, even as believers, are getting caught up in thinking that that thing is gonna solve everything. God, there is only satisfaction through you. And God, for the weary soul who is going about life in their own strength, just trying to work hard and do good and hopefully it all works out, you meet them at their point of need and you reveal yourself as the Messiah, the only one who has the power to forgive sin, to grant peace with God, and to grant life and life to the full. So God, if there's anybody here who needs to begin a relationship with you, I pray today will be the day of salvation. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. And God, we give you praise. And I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts in a very real and specific way this morning. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.